Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Being Brown and Bold podcast. I'm your host, Jess Thomas. We're so glad that you're joining us for all these amazing conversations about stepping out of our comfort zone, being bold, and taking chances. Today, I am chatting with Sarah Thomas. A former sommelier and fine dining professional, Sarah is now the co-founder and chief brand officer at Kalamata's Kitchen, where she brings together her lifelong passions for both food and books. The daughter of two South Indian immigrants, Sarah grew up in the rural town of Somerset, Pennsylvania, and was surrounded by food from a young age. Her parents very much kept their Indian culture alive through the food they cooked. And Sarah spent the summers in Kerala, visiting her grandparents, forming some of her earliest food memories. Sarah's love for food is what eventually led her into the hospitality industry. After helming the wine program at Bar Marco and launching the nationally recognized wine program there, she spent nearly six years as a sommelier in a three-star Michelin restaurant called La Bernadette, where she obtained prestigious advanced sommelier certification. Along with food, books played a special role in Sarah's upbringing, eventually leading to a master's in literature from the University of Cambridge. Like many first-generation kids, Sarah grew up with what she felt were two conflicting identities. With her strong Indian heritage seeming to contrast against the mostly white rural town where she lived, and literature became a way for her to escape into another world. Through her storytelling work with Kalamata's Kitchen, Sarah hopes to create a confident character that other children of color can see in themselves, while also encouraging all kids to look at different foods and cultures with a sense of curiosity and compassion. Sarah has authored two books in the Kalamata's Kitchen series with an animated series in development. Sarah, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. About yourself, what does it mean to be you? Um, well, I, I mean, the intro, I think, covered all the functional things that I do and how I grew up and um, the things that are important to me, chiefly food and books and uh, teaching, introducing children and their families to the world through food. That's definitely, that's my driving motivator day to day for what I do professionally and in my personal life as well. Um, what it's like to be me, you know, like slightly panicked and stressed about uh, small business ownership all the time, um, but trying very hard to, to, to enjoy life along the way. Um, I think that probably sums it up. I'm fascinated with your visits to India every year and staying with your grandparents. Yeah, th those visits really were a big, big part of my life. And I'm now in hindsight, you know, I'm I'm 35 and I'm really grateful to have spent almost every summer of my life up until my mid-20s um, with my grandparents, my grandmother in particular in Kerala. Um, so, you know, when we were kids, it was like the day after school let out, we went to India. And the day before school started again, we came back from India. <laughs> so yeah. like it was, it was really like a chunk of time every year. I mean, it was like three months, of, I think, of, you know, school break at that time. Uh, we visited both sets of grandparents. Uh, my mom's family was mostly in Chennai. My dad's family was in a smaller, a really small town called Tiruvala in Kerala. And, you know, my my dad's parents, I think that's where I had a lot of my most formative memories because they had a working farm. And so for a kid, it's just like a different kind of nature. Like I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, so I was in the woods all the time. But like, in, you know, it's a totally different flora and fauna situation in Kerala. Um, it's just like rich and like varied they grew and processed spices. Um, and so I think like some of my, I loved smelling things, you know? And so like in the morning, walking on the compound with my grandmother, we'd pick jadakia or nutmeg. Um, you know, she taught me like when you pick them and how you know they're ripe. And then you sit and separate them from the mace from the, from the nut, you, you let them dry. And what I always remember really starkly is just the difference in scent from like when you're picking it up out of like wet earth, like if it's mm -hmm. fallen to the, you know, from the freshness of that to what it smells like after it's dried to then the final spice. I just thought that was normal um, stuff to get to do as a kid. So I was, I was really lucky to have those formative kind of scents and food memories be part of my upbringing. And then did you help with cooking also? 
You know, it's funny. I love cooking now, um, but I didn't cook until I had to, like until I went to college because I mean, this, the kitchen was the center of the home. So I was always sort of surrounded by the scents and sounds and, and obviously tastes of, of food as well, like growing up, but I didn't actually actively participate in the cooking process. I just like did my homework in the kitchen where my mom was cooking. So yeah. I was surrounded by it and immersed in it, but I didn't do it. Certainly not when I was in India, there were just, you know, there's a whole team of people doing that, that they were right. like, please leave, like <laughs> get out of our way. Do you have a preference for Kerala foods versus other foods? I mean, my favorite foods are all Kerala, probably all, not all, but like largely Malayali foods that I grew up eating. But like, I don't make those as often as I make other things only because they're never as good as my mom's. So mm -hmm. like, they're my favorite foods and I do make them and I love making them for friends. Mm -hmm. um, but in my head, I'm like, why would I make this all the time? Because it's not as good as my mom's. Um, I, I make other things for myself and my husband generally, but I save I save those things for friends who have never had Kerala food before. And um, I personally just gorge whenever I go home. <laughs> what did you imagine your life would be like as an adult? Either, not even necessarily vocationally, but just like what you'd be doing like on a day-to-day -day basis or where you'd live. Do you think you'd ever live in India? No, I never thought I would live in India. I live in New York now and I never thought I'd live in New York. But when I was a kid, I pretty much just, I thought that I was just going to follow all the steps you were supposed to follow. Like in terms of like, I think the only thing I thought of was like what my job was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I was like, I guess I'll be a doctor. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> I like what I'm supposed to do. And then there was a period of time where I was like, I guess, I think I'll be a lawyer because I think that's also acceptable. And then there was a period of time where I was like, I think I'll be a professor because I think that was also acceptable, but like, you know, I, I didn't really, but outside of like the job, I don't, I don't remember ever really thinking like, oh, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have a dog. I'm going to live in this place. Like, I just didn't, I don't think I thought that way. I think I just thought about what I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> those yeah. things are what I do. Did did you think of those specific careers because those were the things your parents, I don't know what your parents did yeah. in their jobs. Yeah, my dad, I, my, I come from a family of doctors. Um, I also, on my dad's side, but I also have a lot of teachers on my mom's side. So like mm. um, there was, I think that was always kind of in me, the teaching aspect of it. And all my first jobs were around teaching um, as a ski instructor and then as a college teaching assistant. Um, and, and but yeah like I really just thought I, I only thought about like the functional elements of it and it's like what I think part of it is because like my dad's personality was also his job right like and that's just like the model that I grew up with was like my dad was a doctor and like that was his life and I was like yeah that's his personality too <laughs> like, yeah and it was that also just seemed normal to me so then I guess it was difficult for you to figure out a career path because you had the I should all these things but I mean you loved reading as even as a kid and you love food so was it hard to like choose any one thing or did you just be like oh just I'm doing the next thing I'm doing the next thing um I think in the moment it felt hard to choose and in hindsight it's like no that was the lot that like I was always going to do that mm -hmm. and um I mean in the moment so I went it's just it's kind of funny how it all ended up like happening. I, I went to college early and I was pre-med and um, what I didn't realize was that because I was I was 16, um, my grades would still get sent home to my parents uh, and I didn't, I didn't know that. And so like after my first semester, I think my freshman year, I, um, I, I sneakily had changed my major to literature and political science and I like forgot that they were going to find that out. <laughs> um, and um and I did it because I liked the professor that I had for for freshman comp right like mm -hmm. that was like the reason I did it I was just like I can't do I don't think I can do organic chemistry right now yeah. um I really like this is the one class I've enjoyed I'm gonna try and be a lit major and I love reading and I whatever it wasn't like a super I wasn't at that point I wasn't thinking about like what my career would be I was just like I need to do something different mm -hmm. that wasn't received well um but it's what I did anyway and that was the point where they were like okay well if you're going to do literature and politics or in political science like you can be a lawyer and I was like great that seems like a fair outcome yeah and again that's <laughs> not what happened right. 
but that was what I was working towards after I switched. Um, which again, wasn't like a well thought out switch. It was just like what I needed to do at the moment. And I did it, which seems to be a theme in my life. No, but that's cool because it felt like you weren't doing conventional things or maybe like what was expected, but you weren't punished. You weren't forced to like, no, you're going to change your major. You are going to be a doctor. No, they did. They tried. I mean, they were, they, they didn't, there wasn't, there's not really, I guess there is a way to force because like that, I feel like this, that story, I've heard that story a lot that that does happen to people, but they, I don't think, I, I think I was stubborn enough that they were just like, fine, whatever, like, do you? Um, and, but you have to have, their thing was always that I just had to have some sort of concrete plan um, to get some sort of job that had in their, what in, in their minds, what equal, what equaled security. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's just a couple of professions that then to them guaranteed that. Um, and so like, they were like, fine, do English and politics, but yeah, you it's, it's in order to be a lawyer. Right. You agree? Yeah. I was like, yeah, sure. Fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it, they didn't force me in one sense, but I still was having to operate like within what they thought was acceptable about what I had chosen. That makes sense. Yeah. So then it's not like, I know for me growing up, it wasn't just the people in my house, my parents, it was also the aunties and the uncles that like they communicated with, whether they lived close to us or far from us. Did you have that kind of Kerala community around you geographically? Like tell us about your experience of that. No, I didn't. Um, in Somerset, there was, uh, I think, a very unique, um, I mean, there weren't very many non-white people to begin with. There was a very small Indian community, almost all of whom were in the jobs that like have come to become stereotypical for Indian, like Indians, right? It's either the doctors or the hospitality workers, so like hotel owners and stuff. And all of us, you know, in in, in Somerset, we all hung out together because we, you know, you, you create community where you, where you need it. And that's what uh, they did. Um, but almost nobody was from the same place, which is really interesting. And in hindsight, like a very unique way to form an Indian identity, because oftentimes I've noticed that like ever in living in other places, Malayalis group together and Gujaratis group together and so, so on and so forth. And in Somerset, you just didn't really have that option. So like, I had Gujarati aunties and Marathi aunties and one Malayali auntie and you know like I had and from everywhere and one Bengali yeah. auntie who like was really formative and so no I didn't have a specifically Malayali like like community um, growing up and I never really did after that either and I didn't I didn't know what I was missing to be honest so I didn't miss it and I don't now I feel like I feel like I had a very um, I still had a robust community in a way in, in the yeah. version that I could. Um, and, but no, I don't, I mean, I think that like people shared their opinions with my parents, but like, I didn't feel particularly affected by them. Yeah. Like, I think my mom would sometimes call and be like, so-and-so auntie is like her kids or and I'd be like, oh. <laughs> like so, which was probably not very nice. Um, you know, which is she was operating within the, the framework that she understood. Right. Um, yeah. Which I just didn't care about. Yeah. So it's interesting because the way that you grew up is how my kids grew up in rural Tennessee um, with not having in their face this, this community, whereas I grew up with lots of Malayali community around me. And so there were those voices. Um, but my parents also, they were different. Like they didn't be, I mean, they did want us to have secure jobs. Mm-hmm. So to them, it's secure to be a doctor and all that. But then they saw my, they saw my grades much earlier and they're like, oh, well, I guess that's not going to happen. Um, but here where we live, there were like hospitality Gujarati, there was other physicians that were Beng- Bangladeshi, but they still like didn't mingle. Like oh, we really? knew that they were there, we might see them at the park but they would drive the full hour to the big city to find community. I was like, hey, how come we didn't get invited to the Eid party? Like we're right here. (laughs) 
So yeah, no, we celebrated every, that was, it was weird. I mean, they, we were an hour and a half away from Pittsburgh and certainly there were Gujarati, Marathi, Bengali and Malayali communities in Pittsburgh that we could have participated in all individually. And I think, I think especially the Gujarati families did, because I went to like Navratri Garbas. They'd always took me though, right? Like I was still included. Aww. Like I went to like Garbas um, party, like I, I, the Garbas celebrations and stuff like in Pittsburgh and stuff when I was growing up. I just, I thought it was really fun. Yeah. And they always took me. Um, so they certainly did do that, but it wasn't at the expense of um, like the day-to-day just like survival in this town mm-hmm. we all cooked for each other and I the, the only babies babysitting I ever had was like at random either Gujarati Marathi or Bengali auntie's house you know like yeah so it it was it was I think that was if I I don't always say a lot of nice things about the place I came from but if I have to call out one I think that that unique melange of in Indians around me, um, though small, was very impactful on my life. Yeah, that's a, that's actually really awesome. That's that reminds me of like when my dad grew up in Kerala. He would talk about it wasn't they were all Malayalis, but like they were all different religions. Yeah, so they would go to the mosque and the temple and to the church, and yeah. everybody went to each other's community celebrations and weddings. Yes. <laughs> it's it's incredible because I think my parents always very proudly told me about in Kerala how tolerant um things like people were and how the best part about it was that they always they got to celebrate every holiday so they were like we know we don't understand why people are intolerant around religion because like the best case scenario is you get so many more holidays if you (laughs) like yeah (laughs) yeah that seems very logical to me um and it's I so I remember having like my hackles raised a lot when people would be like like the assumption, I mean, and it is true to a large extent, like what a lot of people hear or know about India, if they're not, if they're not familiar with the, the culture of tolerance in certain parts of India is, is the sometimes larger context of intolerance. And Mm -hmm. it's a shame because obviously we know India is much more diverse and varied and nuanced than that. Um, But I just remember being brought up with a very different idea of what it meant to be Indian um, and how, how there was a culture of respect um, and not just tolerance, but celebration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not always reflected in, in what other people see about India, which I always found sad. Yeah, it is really sad. And current politics is not helping it either. In exactly. India. I mean, there's, there's truth. There's obviously truth to it. I mean, the, yeah. there's obviously truth. Um, I just, you know, again, that was just what I was brought up believing and then you know it took me as a kid it, you don't I don't always re- I didn't realize that like that was Carol was very small <laughs> in comparison to the yeah. rest of the subcontinent so like you know I just didn't know it didn't really extend yeah so as you were growing up you are in this rural white community did you feel like you didn't really fit in as far as like friendships and then even like you know your upgrade upbringing and your future for like the dreams of like what you wanted to do how was that experience for you um I definitely didn't feel like I fit in I desperately wanted to though so I I did actively it was a very it was difficult right like I actively suppressed a lot of the Indianness you know outside of like the fact that I can't really change what I look like um you know I I didn't I don't know. I, I I actively definitely tried to like be as quote unquote American as I thought I, I could be. Mm-hmm. But and it took me a long time to realize that like doesn't really matter what I do, like people aren't gonna see me that way. So mm-hmm. like, that's it's not it's not up to me, it's up to them if you know if that's my goal. And so it took me a long time, like into adulthood to realize that that's not shouldn't be my goal. Um so yeah, I didn't I didn't because the other thing is like at home we were very Indian <laughs> like we eat Indian food all the time and like I spent half the year in, not half the year but like a large portion of the year in India and um so those two those two things those two personalities were very stark and in my head really incompatible obviously mm-hmm. they're, but they felt that way when I was a kid um in terms of like dreams and stuff I don't know I didn't I don't think I I didn't I think I had kind of a dim view of um, what the majority of people in my town wanted to do with their lives. Mm. For one, like would 
rather die than like stay in the same place that I grew up in. And I, that sounds so harsh and I don't judge anyone for doing that now. But when I was a kid, I was like, I would never stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I think that was the ambition for a lot of people that I grew up with and that's fine. That's, that's absolutely fine. It wasn't mine. So that's definitely a big difference um, that I had then. And I'm sure that rubbed people the wrong way, just as they rubbed me the wrong way. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it just, I was a sore thumb in that town. Um, I think like, you know, as I'm hearing your reflection, we felt like we were called to be in this tiny town and raise our family here, but I had full expectation my children should not stay here. Like we're gonna, and we homeschooled just because um, we just felt like that's what we need to do with our kids. And we, we knew other homeschoolers in this area. I'm like, but my goal is so that you get out of here and you are not a burden on society, but you contribute. And so they all left and one took a while. She's, He's finally moving this year, um, but I'm like, why? You there's the the world is so big. I, I feel like yeah. I taught you that the world is so big. Just fly away, come back for vacation, and enjoy the beautiful mountains. But like, live your and so all three of them are in three major cities. So it's like fun to see. Okay, they have some angst about their upbringing, but then as they get older and look back, they're like, but there were some good things that we experienced that we never would have experienced in the city and in the suburbs. Definitely. That's definitely true. I didn't see that when I was a kid. And it's also like not true that the whole population was homogenous. Like there've been people who left to great success and came back to great success and did whatever. But like, I didn't know any of that when I was growing up. It just, it seemed like me versus them. Um, It's not, it's not true. It's just what it seemed like. Right. Right. It's your perception at each stage. Yeah. Yeah. And we grow and evolve and yeah. Yeah. So with your education choices for yourself of like what you want to study and what you wanted to be, um, did you feel, and I even like that dual identity of like, I'm American, but I'm Indian. Did you ever struggle with honoring your parents in that whole process? Yeah, um, definitely. Because even though I was like, whatever, I'm good. It's my life and I'm going to do what I want. I felt very burdened in a way by the, not that like, I, like, I wouldn't not burdened so much to the fact, the point that I would like switch and be like, be a doctor because it's what my parents wanted, but burdened with the weight of what I felt was disappointment Mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. That like, if I didn't succeed in the thing that they wanted me to, to the degree that they wanted me to, that they would just be disappointed in me for the rest of my life. And Mm -hmm that they, you know, had worked so hard. They'd like, basically their whole lives were about us doing well, like, which also seemed like a shame to me, but like, that's what it was. That was the truth. Um, so I did, I used all immigrant parents. That's that yeah. they all came here. So we would have a better life. Right. So, you know, yes, definitely. I felt that pressure. Um, but ultimately I was like, I think I, there was a phase where I was like, whatever, they've written me off. And that's also feels bad, right? Where you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm like so much of a disappointment that like, they don't, they just don't care what I do. And that's kind of why I was like, I'm going to the restaurant industry, but it wasn't true. Like, again, that's like how I felt, but mm-hmm. they, my, I have a great relationship with my parents and they're lovely people. Um, and it felt like how I felt and how they were able to communicate things to me was like, you know, there was, there was definitely, there were hard years and there was a lot of disconnect for a long time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely struggled with that, especially in my like late teens, early twenties. Um, it was very hard, very hard for me. Um, I had interviewed Manit Chohan and she's like, oh, I still struggle. Like this is a lifelong, as long as you have parents, you're going to (laughs) struggle. Yeah. I mean, that's also true is like, no matter what I do, I'm always like, what is my mom going to say about this? (laughs) And um, how is this going to get translated to the WhatsApp groups? And Mm. (laughs) yeah, but it's different. We have reached a different level of understanding, I think, than the like the late teens, early twenties, like constant struggle. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does continue to get better as we get older and our parents are a little bit more right as we get 
Oh, totally. And, and, and I have a lot more empathy for them too, because like, there's a, there's a switch point at some point in your life when you start to see your parents as human beings and not just your parents. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, um, there's lots of decisions that they made that I grew up being like, why the hell would you do that? Say that, put us here, do whatever. And in hindsight, I'm like, you were doing the best you could. And like, I don't blame you at all in yeah. the same circumstances. How can I say I wouldn't have made the same decision? Yeah. So I like, that's also helped. That's tempered my feelings of like guilt or whatever that was in, in my, when I was younger, um, because it's like, we're all just doing what we can. And like, I, I'm not angry at them for decisions that they made or the ways they communicated with me because that's what they knew. Right. Um, and we, we've, I'm lucky enough that I think they've evolved and in this, in the same way that I have, mm -hmm. um, you know, like we, I don't know that everybody gets to gets that lucky, but I do think my parents have tried to change. And I think I've tried to change and it's always, you know, you're always working. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good all the time. <laughs> would, yeah. You know. Oh, don't worry. In the next 10 years, you're going to get in here and like all different parts of your brain, like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's going to be so many moments where my mom will not be able to stop herself from saying I told you so. And you know what? That's fine. <laughs> I do work really hard to not say I told you so. <laughs> it's fine. I'm but like, it it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> She's right. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if this was your experience, but like for me growing up, a central focus with our community as a brown person is marriage. And so we always were told, you know, me and my, all my friends, like you're growing up, you shouldn't be dating, just finish your education, get a job. Then you can think about marriage and then maybe you can meet somebody and tell us about them, but we can help you with that. And, but you don't really start like enjoying relationships until after you are married. So that's what we were taught. I don't know if any of that echoes with your story. Yeah, I think that's exactly what they said, but that's definitely not what I did. So. <laughs> and many of us. Yeah, it's yeah. not what we did. Yeah, no, that's that's almost the I, like exact narrative that I was fed. But like, the, I was always like, cool, it sounds great. And then like, I dated, you know, I did whatever I wanted <laughs> when yeah. I went to college. Aww. Did you meet your husband in New York? No, I met... Um, my husband in Pittsburgh when I was working at that restaurant bar, Marco. Ah, okay. Yeah. Neat. Well, congratulations on your pregnancy. That is yeah. super exciting. So as you are looking at this next chapter of your life, you know, you didn't plan on living in New York City. So what are your thoughts for raising your child, you know, being biracial, living in the melting pot of New York City? It's a little different than the way you were raised. Yeah. Um, it's one of the main reasons I stay here, to be honest, um, because I think there's lots of places that are happy mediums between New York City and Somerset, Pennsylvania. But <laughs> given given my experience, I do have some anxiety around like never wanting my kid to feel like they're the only one, right? It's like that was this that was my norm for so long. The the like the ways that the contributed to me feeling like I didn't like in, in a room in a town or whatever, like I didn't belong there. Um, that's a personal anxiety that I had for a long time. And I don't, I don't know that it would be the same for my kid, but I don't like, there's part of me that like, doesn't want to find out and doesn't want them to have to find out. So like one of the main reasons that staying in New York is important to me right now, at least, I mean, I'm not saying forever, but like, is I think about that all the time. It's like, I, I, I don't want their, I don't want them to have a similar experience to, to what I had. Um, I don't even, I don't even know if that's, you know, like, like likely or possible anymore because it's not like I would move to Somerset, but like, right. or that Somerset would be the same. I have no clue, no clue, but it's a better, more indication to me that like that won't happen here. So that's a big, it's a big part of why we choose to stay for now, at least. I've had friends who have moved from like, the suburbs of Atlanta, the suburbs of um, Chicago, so truly the suburbs, and they moved into New York City. Um, I think both of them moved into Manhattan, and they said it was the best thing they did for their family and for their kids, like living in a tiny space because of proximity. They had to learn how to like love each other yeah. in, in their face. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot that's really difficult about living here. Um, and my husband can name all of them. <laughs> but, um, he also loves it here. But, you know, there's a lot that's difficult about living here. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for things like that of like, yeah, I mean, I don't, how much space do I need really? Like, and how much space do we need? And like, if it might be nice, especially for the first few years of life to, you know, we, you figure, you figure out how to love and how to live in the, in the space that you have and with what you have. And like, I'm kind of, maybe this is another theme of my life. Like, I guess I'm kind of excited to experience it this way because no one else in my family has. Mm. Um, and so it's, again, it's just like me getting to do something a little bit different from yeah what was maybe expected or wanted for me <laughs> yeah no I think it's going to be great like I because I've heard as people are like oh I would never raise my child in the city but the more people in fact yeah I have a friend whose son just graduated from high school in the city and yeah they've like loved their life because there's so many opportunities that you have that yeah you don't have a sprawling yard and a pool and like taking horse riding lesson, whatever, but so what? Like there's you know, so there's many other a trade off. Like everything yeah. is a trade off. There are huge benefits to not living in the city. There are huge benefits to living here. And I, I'm willing right now, my scale tips in the direction of living here, but you know, it's not to, I don't, I, I'm jealous every time I visit my friends who live, who don't live in the city. And I'm like, why don't I do this again? But I, <laughs> but ultimately for me, like my scales tip in the direction of the, the opportunity here, the exposure here, the diversity, like it's, it means just so much more to me. And like my people talk about the public schools and the school systems and stuff all the time. And I'm like, look, my school was like one of the worst in the country. And my siblings and I all went to public school in one of the worst performing school districts in the country year after year. And we're fine. And right. there's, so I have a lot of faith that like a lot of the schooling system is like what is reinforced at home, yeah. which I could, maybe I'm completely naive. I don't know, but like, that's no, what you're right. You're right. And, and, and to me, the value then of being exposed to kids who don't necessarily come from the same background that my kid will um, I think that that's in a lot of ways, a higher value of life experience than like, you know, the way they learn how to multiply. Um, so that's another factor for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I think there, what I've sensed is in general, there's a fear of poverty, uh, not being poor, but being with people who are experiencing poverty. Oh. And so mixing people yeah. like, um, especially because we're in the healthcare realm. And so like who my husband sees as patients are the ones that come to a, a community health center. Yeah. And when we talk about it with other people, they're like, oh, but if you worked in this town, you would have this fancy brand new hospital, but like, mm. and there's a stigma, but it's true when you go to public school and you have a mix of everybody, your kids don't see that separation because they're just friends, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really valuable. I think that's really valuable life experience. I think it leads, I mean, I, to me, that kind of exposure leads to empathy um, and an understanding that like, we're lucky, like our, we're all lucky in our own ways. And um, it's like a genetic coin flip that we got to be where we are. And I want my kid to understand that it just, you know, a flip of the coin and could have been somewhere else, or I could have been somewhere else and in different circumstances. And paycheck to paycheck and who knows what else. And like, that's, that's, that doesn't mean that that person is better, is, is, is worse than you in some way. Like you, you, you have a different kind of life and I want them to respect, I want them to grow up seeing that and respecting that. It's very important to me. That's awesome. Um, I want to switch to Kalamata's Kitchen. Uh, I love the books and the concept. And now you're having like an animated series coming out. I don't know how much you can share about that part not a lot <laughs> not a lot I was like I'm, I know it's been in the works for a while yes um but I'm super excited and one of the questions I've had is I, have you had much feedback on um because I feel like a lot of you know what's kid kid-friendly food right so I feel like I don't know why, because my kids didn't grow up like this but I feel like I always need to have chicken nuggets in the freezer and a box of mac and cheese just in case a kid does not eat what I'm serving. And I and I hear a lot of parents that, you know, they that's what they order. And I don't know why restaurants like 
this is the kids menu. These are these options. Um, have you heard much feedback or stories about students enjoying different types of food besides the nuggets and the mac and cheese? 100% yes. I have like proof in real life of that being true. And, you know, to address basically everything you just said about, um, you know, restaurants having kids menus and what is what does kid friendly even mean? And why have things like chicken nuggets and buttered noodles come to represent like all kid palettes across this country? We're actually in the process of relaunching our Taste Bud Travel Guide, um, which is a family-friendly dining resource uh, for parents. And I'm writing articles on literally all of those things um, because I think it's, you know, I, I don't, again, this is no judgment on anyone and no blame on anyone for feeding their children any of those things. And I mean, like, I love a chicken nugget here and there. Like, I'm, I'm not, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these foods or with buttered noodles or whatever, but the idea that a child's palate has to be limited to to these things that are, I mean, like when you look at them are not particularly good for you either. Um, mm -hmm. It's really absurd to me. And it has been just, it has been drilled into the American psyche for so many years that it's very difficult to break out of. And I understand that it's very difficult to break out of. Mm -hmm. That's a large part of why my company exists is to try and help, not to say you have to eat these other things in order for your kid to like be a good person or for you to be a good parent, but just to offer maybe an easy, like a couple steps that parents can take to try, if they're interested, to try and introduce their kids to some of these broader flavors and cultures and experiences outside of what has been the norm. So we have done tasting events in the past where you know, part of the the buy-in for the kid is that like we give them a VIP badge and uh, a passport um, and like it's theirs. And we're like, this event, this is for you. Um, on the passport, they have like, you know, six to eight different bites of food from all over the world. And if they agree that they're going to try each one two times, they get a stamp. Um, mm. They get to finish their passports, they get a prize. And yes, are we gamifying this experience? 100%. But if the point is to just get a kid to get over the fear of the unfamiliar, this is a really good way to do it. Because once they've done it once, they know they can do it and they'll do it again. And we've seen that time and time again. So like the last event that we did, two of the vendors that we had were um, Kopitiam, which is this amazing Malaysian, Baba Nonya Malaysian restaurant here in, in, uh, in New York, and the Maka, which is an Indian restaurant here in New York. And now these are two restaurants that like adults cannot get a reservation to right now. Right. Like the, the chefs are famous. They make incredible food and like adults are like clamoring to go to these places. Both of them showed up in person to like Chintampanya came to this, this event in person to make bites of chat and feed it to kids because it oh. was so exciting for him. Um, and the kids were so excited to do it. And parents were like, Oh, I don't know. I think it might be too spicy. And I was like, what? Just don't, maybe right. just let them see if it is, it is, but like, don't preface that. Let them just go and do it. And they ate everything. They ate everything. They ate, there were six bites of Malaysian and Indian food there, all different. None of the kids, I think, with maybe like one exception, like none of them had had any of the foods. They all tried them. Most of them went back for seconds. I mean, they're little. So like, you can only eat so much quantity wise, but yeah. like, they loved it. And so we have proof and we've done that time and time again at food festivals at wherever and we never pick the easy things right we pick, a, you know, we pick things that kid, like parents might not think of as immediately kid friendly and that's the point because we have to have parent buy in. Uh, like a kid can't choose these things for themselves a lot of time we have to right. have a parent reframe what they think is the definition of kid friendly in order for in order for their child to experience it. So we're just trying to encourage parents to look at that definition a little bit differently. One of the best the best ways that I found to do it is again, no judgment here, but just simply reminding people that like like what do you think kids in India eat? Right. Are, there, are there not kids there like like right. food itself is not inherently not not kid friendly because you are not familiar with it. The food right. is kid friendly and you have proof of that because a billion and a half children eat that food. So your kid, it just depends on when and how they're exposed to it. Now, there are preferences, certainly. There are there are tolerance, there are in, intolerances, absolutely 100%. All we're saying is offering that different perspective on saying it is possible that these things can also be enjoyed by your kids and by you. They're not, they don't have to be inherently 
unfamiliar and unfamiliar be bad. They can be just a way for you to expose your kids to a broader number of spices and flavors and textures if that's something you want to do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I feel like that's what you're talking like. I feel a lot of parents project what they like or don't like onto their kids. So then the kid will be like, oh, I shouldn't eat that, can't eat that, won't be good. And so then they just think, oh, I, I'm not supposed to eat that. Or right. like, ew, I don't want that. But for how many, for, for so many years, it's not like it's up to the kid what they get to eat anyway. So like, that's right. the thing it's like, a lot of the blame, I we, there's a lot of rhetoric around p- picky eaters, right? Like there's, that's like a top search term and, you know, it, there's a lot of writing um, and a lot of advice that exists out there on like how to feed picky eaters and how to get your kid to eat more vegetables and all of these things. And ultimately all of that is, what is it? It's feeding the parent perspective, which is mm-hmm. because the parent is controlling what the kid eats. So all I'm saying is I'm just adding to that. Like, and there's, it's, there's a real chorus of perspectives out there. So I understand that like, it can be really overwhelming. Um, but all of those are, you know, I, I just, I feel like at the end of the day, like those are, there's a lot of stuff that's very didactic around what you should and shouldn't do with your kid. And in a lot of ways, like, I'm just trying to say, why don't we just step back and look at other cultures too? Because this one has been really prescriptive in a lot of ways in what you should and shouldn't do with your kids. And I don't blame parents for getting stuck in that at all. That's, that's been fed to you. It's convenient. Um, and yes, kids like it because all of us like salty, fatty food, like right. yes. sweet. Yeah. If given the option, like to always pick the salty fatty version of something like a lot of people would. And so of course a kid will, Um, but it's about the exposure, the opportunity to expose your kids to different things um, and see what works and see what doesn't um, that I think people find scary. Um, And I'm, we're just trying to demystify that. And the large part of that is by like getting the kid to buy in. And that comes with the characters, right? With with al dente, um, with them not being scared to do it in the first place. And then the parents like, oh, it was me that was scared to do this. Yeah. And I feel like part of that fear also, because what I hear is, but then my kid won't eat anything, right? So I have a fear that my kid is going to be malnourished or whatever it is, but I, (laughs) I feel like, like what we did with our kids, they don't have, you know, if you don't finish this, that's fine because we also don't want to have this, like you are forced to eat this and because then you have the empty plate club and that's not healthy either. But if I know they don't hate it, they just don't prefer it today or um, they would rather eat this other thing, then I'll be like, okay, this is your food. And, you know, everybody has their parenting techniques. This is your food. We know you don't hate it. You just don't feel like eating it right now. Like eat however much you want of it. And whatever you don't want, that's fine. But there's no more food for you for the next three hours. So this is going to be saran wrapped and stuck in the fridge. And then three hours from now, when you're hungry, you're not getting the cookie cake, whatever it is, you're going to eat this. And yeah, we had stubborn confrontations at different times, but eventually, they ate it. They're not going to starve. <laughs> yeah. That was my mom's theory too. Is like, she's like, you're going to eat when you're hungry. And like, if you don't eat too bad, <laughs> yeah. like, but yeah, we're, we weren't going to starve ourselves. So like we, we ate the food eventually. And like, that's, that's a not, that's not something I would sit, project onto another parent and be like, you know, that every, like you said, everyone has their own styles of doing it. That is how I grew up. Um, and but in that, it, it's, it's fine. I guess the point is just showing like there are examples of that also working. So if what you're doing isn't working, um, but, and you're scared of trying something else, it's like, well, what's the downside? Because you have, you do have examples of it, it does work with other kids and other people. And like, we survived and we're fine. And that's how we grew up. Um, and what you're doing right now, you don't like anyway. So like, what's the harm in maybe just trying this other method? Right. Um, and I love the two bite rule because you know, if they eat it and they're like gagging or what, you know, like, so I knew when my kids were like, this one really doesn't like mushrooms. I'm not going to put the mushrooms in his because we already know he tried it. It's fine. This one doesn't like tomatoes. It's fine. And so, but then as they all grew up, they pretty much all eat everything. They cook and 
they like buy very little processed foods because their palate is developed yeah, to eat, like yeah. real food. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I we love never, my mom never made different food. We always ate what my dad wanted to eat. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, again, I didn't know there was another way. I was like, like shocked when I found out that some of the people I went to school with, like they just like ate completely different meals from their parents. I was like, really? Like why? (laughs) (laughs) Also to me, you know, mealtime was, was about community and, and, you know, catching up and all that stuff. So like, it's just, it's just a cultural difference. Um, but like, it's one, I think that a lot of people find very appealing, but if they didn't grow up that way, they don't know how to access it. So again, we're just trying to provide those kind of resource points for people who are like, that sounds nice. And I'd like to do that with my kids and my family. I didn't grow up that way. How do I do it? We're just trying Mm -hmm. to help. Yeah, no, I love I love the mission of your company and how you are promoting because you're being countercultural and and it, it's we're surrounded by that culture of like this is what a kid eats. So it's it's awesome to see Kamara and Del Dente like promoting that. Um, yeah, your characters are super cute. I love them. I was like, I wish I had a Kamara like stuffed doll when I was little, but I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. And it's like 35 years later, we, you know, we had to make her because she still didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. We talked, so, you know, you even mentioned it right before <clears throat> it's part of the meal is sitting around the table, the community, the conversation. And a lot of what I do is like, how do we nourish the soul and nursing the soul? Part of it is food, it's relationships, it's community. It's also faith. And I know like, even what you're talking about growing up in Pittsburgh, you're encountering people of all different faith backgrounds and cultures. And obviously in New York, you are as well. Do you feel like um, there's been any specific belief or faith system that's informed your outlook in life? It's a good question. I I was raised very Catholic, um, but I had a very early resistance to the church. Um, So I think a large part of my life was kind of in terms of like religion specifically was like that kind of angsty rejection of institutional religion. Um, But, you know, in my old age, no, it's, I, 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 I don't, I consider myself someone that's very just open to what I don't understand. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my, that's like how I see faith is like, I have to accept that there are things I don't understand. I don't have to ascribe. I don't seek, I don't seek an answer in the face in the form of religion. I guess I could say, I don't blame any, I, I but I respect people who do because I can see, I see that it brings comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that it brings a reason to believe and something to believe in for later, um, not necessarily what you know you're living through right now. And I just I have a deep respect for it. Um, and so to me, like that's more being spiritual than religious. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of having faith in something, I think, is very appealing to me. For me, it's just like I just I I think it's just like a faith in 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 my in the understanding that like there's a lot that I can't understand and I find that weirdly comforting and cosmic so yeah that's 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 my overarching thing is like yeah I have no idea and that's fine (laughs) yeah yeah and I don't think anybody I mean if they have it nailed down then that must be God because who would have it nailed down right (laughs) yeah I mean that's the I find it very unappealing when um, someone else insists that they do know, mm. uh, and they know better and their way is the right way. I find that very unappealing. And I do think that, um, religion tends to bring that out in people. So I've rejected that notion for many, many years. Yeah. Again, I don't, you know, I, that's, I think organized religion, um, and zealotry in any form are different from having faith, um, and whatever you call that faith is up to you, but, uh, those are different things in my head. Yeah. Do, have you encountered, because you look like this, um, oh, you must be this religion, therefore you must eat this or, or you must not eat this. Sure. Have, have people been casually racist with me? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, growing up in Somerset, it's like, you grew such a thick skin. I didn't even realize I was supposed to be outraged for like a long time about certain things. I just took it as a given that people would not like would make assumptions about me that weren't true. And I would just, it was just my job to patiently explain them. Yeah. Um, so I actually do have a great deal of patience with, 
with a lot of those conversations about that mostly just involve assumptions. Um, like I didn't, I didn't, it was like when I started, when I got older and I started telling people like in, you know, in grad school or whatever, like, oh yeah, no, people would ask me that all the time. They'd be like, aren't you so mad all the time? And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I guess I should have been. <laughs> I, I think just, you were saved from being mad all the time. Cause then you would just be like, I would be an angry person all the time. If I was mad about every time I had some sort of racial aggression or microaggression thrown my way growing up, I would have been just absolutely rage, like full of rage all the time. <laughs> so yeah. Probably yeah. a survival mechanism that I wasn't. Yeah. I think uh, you had said before, you know, people doing the best they can. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that your experience, but like what we've experienced here is more of like ignorant racism of like, they don't even know what questions to ask. They've never been exposed to anybody like us. And so they make comments, but a lot of times it would be like, they're trying to relate to us, but they just don't know what to say or how to ask. And so I think we've all just like laughed off a lot of things, but we've also been like, they're just not, they're not trying to be hateful. The ones that oh. we've yeah. I assume best intentions, right? Like, yeah. and that's, that's how I've survived in the front of house in the restaurant industry too. Like, oh, where are you from? Where are you really from? Like, why yeah. you your name? Like, what's your real name? What's your real name? Like, yeah, I, I assume best intentions. I, I mostly assume that people are trying to connect with me and, and all of that. So that saves me again, that saves me like anger. Um, but, but at the same time, like I, at this stage, like, it's like, you're, aren't we a little past, like, the, the the problem with that line of questioning is that they're already assuming they know the answers. And if you don't give the answer that they expect, they challenge it. So my, so yes, I assume that you're doing, you're asking me these questions to relate to me, but if you don't, but like, then listen to what I'm, then listen to the answer. Right. And so that's where I lose a little bit of my patience. Now, I, I, I think I was more patient when I was younger, but now I'm just <laughs> like, in this day and age, you can Google literally anything. Right. And you're telling me this, like, right. Right. Yeah. No, no. It's not all on me. Like you can also just read something sometimes. Right. Right. What's a Kerala? Oh, there's a great article if you Google it. Yeah. Just do some reading or like, or just ask the question, not assuming you know the answer already. That's mm -hmm. just ask a different question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like you've done a lot of bold moves in your life. We didn't cover it in this podcast. That's lots of other podcasts. If you go listen to Cherry Bomb, if you're listening to this and listen to our podcast there, because you talk more about like all the different moves that you've made between like being in England and the way you got your job in New York City and all that. Um, and so if there's a, especially like people coming from brown background, like listening to this, if they're hesitant about making a bold move, maybe it's countercultural or what they grew up with, like how would you encourage them? Uh, this is either the worst advice or the best advice ever, but like, I, I'll just tell you honestly how I was able to make those moves is because I didn't entire, in, in the best moves that I made, the biggest moves that I made, for example, like into the wine world and then to New York and to start this business, I didn't know what I didn't know. <clears throat> and it's counter to everything I was raised to do, which would be to like project out a plan for 10 years and no research it and have, have everything in place before you take that step. I leaped into stuff that I didn't know. And I think sometimes if I had known more about the restaurant industry, for example, I wouldn't have done it. But if I hadn't done that, I never would have started my company and with, with, with my co-founder. And like, I, you know, there's in hindsight, like I am shocked sometimes at like how little I knew about some of this stuff, but I'm grateful that like I, at that stage acted against my, my, what I was raised to do because I, because that, that is, I guess, boldness in its own way. And like, it was, I don't know if I would have called it that at the time. And I'm sure that nobody in my family did either. I think they called it foolish, but um, I trusted something else, right? I trusted the instinct that I had uh, and the desires that I had to to be do, doing something different that was right for me at the moment. And that trust is not something you can always, that's not something you can plan out for five years. That's not something you can, you can predict and you might fail a couple times. But like, I was brought up with such a rigid fear of failure um, that the moments in my life that I'm most proud of are the times when I said, I actually have no idea whether I'm going to fail or not here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I still try and think that I still have a real fear of failure all the time. Like if you're not, you're the worst and but like, I I grew up that way, but I try, I I try and break out of that because it's not true. It's not true. And if you, if you are constrained by that, I think, um, you know, you'll miss out on a lot of what your own potential is. Um, Mine was not, mine was bigger than mine was bigger. Sounds arrogant, but like, it was just different than what, I was raised to think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, again, it's, that might be terrible advice. I'm not saying like, don't plan anything, but like, you don't have to have everything planned out. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. Great for you. Yeah. Cause even if you do plan everything out, there's a good chance it's going to work out anyway. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's always something, you know, we, if, if nothing, we've learned the past three years, oh, everybody needs to learn how to pivot because. Yeah. And that's a word that like everyone hates hearing, but like, it's also just true. Like you have to, like, you have to be like, I was raised with a lot of rigidity and like, you can't be rigid in this world. You can't, if you, if you, you can, but honestly, it's probably harder on you in the long run. Um, you know, and, and I think I wasn't necessarily raised. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but like, I, I wasn't necessarily raised to think outside the box. Um, but I was an inherently creative person too. So like, once I stopped like trying to stifle that, um, things also became clear to me in terms of what I actually wanted to do and what I felt like I should do and where they could intersect and where they couldn't. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. People listen to that advice and take. <laughs> um, okay, I always ask <laughs> <for> you. <laughs> uh, if you had to choose chai or chaya, uh, tea, like dipping tea, coffee, filter coffee, like any mangalesi, like what's your beverage of like, I'm treating myself. Um, I drink a lot of sparkling water, but like, like, no, if someone, if like as a treat, someone's making me masala chai, I'm so happy. Um, it's like my most, it's like my favorite comforting thing. Um, I don't often make it for myself because I'm lazy and I'm like, well, not, I'm not lazy. I'm just really busy. And I feel like it takes a long time, but like I, um, I buy cola goodies, the Sri Lankan mm-hmm. tea, which isn't masala chai, but it's like just as comforting to me somehow. Yeah. yeah. So I, I love that. But yeah, masala chai, if I, I, if I make it, I'm always like, this is the best decision I made today. Aww. I do have a microwave method that I did on Instagram <clears throat> and I showed, um, Monica from the chai box how to do it. And cause she didn't believe me that it would be good. And I was like, no, trust me. And like, it cuts half the work that yeah. if you do it this way so I do recommend that and that's how that's how I do it every day because I'm just making it for myself right yeah because I would just be making like one cup yeah yeah you just need a four cup glass measuring cup so when it's rising it doesn't like yeah, overflow. Yeah. um yeah, look at yeah I'll grind in, in between um also the question I ask is do you have a curry leaf plant and if so share your best advice I have two one of them is thriving one of them is not and to be honest, I treat them exactly the same way. So I have no idea why they're like this yeah. <laughs> they're like from the same cutting. So if anyone has any advice for me, that would be great. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I, someone told me to like, uh, when I, I make rice all the time. So they said, when you water it, you know, water it with the rice, use the rice water. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's like the, I don't think I do anything special to them, but one's yeah. really doing great and one is just not. So I have, I don't know. The one that's not doing great, does it have like a disease or like yellowing? No, it's just not prospering. Yeah. Um, this is what I've been telling everybody. Sam Four uh, from Tuk Tuk, she had said her Sri Lankan auntie said strip, uh, the one that's not thriving, strip all the branches and start it over and it should come back. I'm going to try it. What, what do I have to lose? <laughs> right, right. And then the leaves, the, if the good ones, you just take it and dry it. And then like you can powder it and make like your own curry leaf powder. Yeah, I don't even have that many on here. So I'll just make, I'll just make oh. some curry for myself. So and strip the rest. Yeah, strip it, take a picture and see in a month what happens. Cool, I will. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. I love Sam. <laughs> she's got, she's the best. Um, I have the best people on this podcast because they all have like really great things to say. So do you have anything that you would like to share? about Kalamata's Kitchen, things that people should be looking for? Sure. Um, I mean, I think 
please follow along on, you know, our social media channels. It's at Calamata's Kitchen and at Taste Bud Travel Guide. Um, make like the summer if you're traveling, um, definitely check out the taste with, with your families, especially. Um, but also just like adults. I, I vouch for every single restaurant on that list. Um, the Taste Bud Travel Guide is a really great resource. And we're in, like I said, we're, you know, within the next like two weeks, it's going to be fully refreshed and, and updated. And um, it, it's just, it's a great resource. There's a lot of articles on there for dining out with your kids and like what you know, just tips and tricks to, to keep them engaged and introduce new flavors. And I just hope that people find it helpful. Um, I've found it really fulfilling to work on and to write. Um, and so I just, you know, I'd love if, if you do find anything about it useful or helpful, I'd love to hear from people too, and feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your life with us and telling us all these great stories. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks everybody for joining us for this episode of Being Brown and Bold. You can find all the links from the show on this podcast. We will be right back next week for our next episode. Till then, be wise and be bold. Mm -hmm.